0: where we bring you updates, interviews, information, entertainment, and conversation about your public lands and waterways. We will feature presentations by guest rangers and others with essential roles in managing and understanding these special places. My name is Mark Pedelty, and I'll be your host today. We're producing this podcast for two reasons first and foremost this is an independent podcast concerned with the current state and preservation of our public lands second for the next 15 weeks i'm also using this podcast in a course taught at the university of minnesota a class about environmental communication at a public land grant institution the interviews and information presented here help current and future interpreters of our public and natural resources learn new ways to tell important stories about the land, water, air, and ecosystems to public audiences. Whether one is a ranger, hiker, hunter, advocate, scientist, policymaker, or some other form of concerned citizen and steward, this podcast seeks to not only provide information about the places we share, steward, and enjoy in common, but also new ideas for how to tell these important stories. After all, how we communicate about our public lands impacts the fates and futures of our environment. So we'll hear from experts about the interpretive work they do at these special places. In a few weeks we'll also start hearing reports from the field by public lands podcast reporters on subjects ranging from butterfly habitat in Minnesota's and Mexico's wilderness areas to the dangers posed by oil trains throughout North America. Per the public subject of this podcast, we see this as a collective work in progress. So if you have any feedback to share with us along the way, please contact us at publiclandspodcast at gmail.com. That's one word, publiclandspodcast at gmail.com. Today we will speak to Pauline Schaefer about the Hanford Reach National Monument and her work as the Education Director of the Reach Museum in Richland, Washington. First, a quick recap of some of the week's news regarding our public lands. It is coincidental that this week is President Donald Trump's Inauguration Day, or rather that his Inauguration Day falls in this week. As one indication of Trump's environmental policies, he has nominated Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt to head the Environmental Protection Agency. Pruitt has spent much of his career opposing the EPA, He's brought a number of suits against the federal government in opposition to environmental regulations and protections. The Washington Post, Chris Mooney, Brady Dennis, and Stephen Muffson published a news story on December 8, 2016, in which they quoted both Trump and Pruitt. Trump was quoted as saying, For too long, the Environmental Protection Agency has spent taxpayer dollars on out-of-control anti-energy agenda that has destroyed millions of jobs, while also undermining our incredible farmers and many other businesses and industries at every turn. The release quoted Trump as saying, in this case, Trump quoting Pruitt, that Pruitt will reverse this trend and restore the EPA's essential mission of keeping our air and our water clean and safe. And Trump added, My administration strongly believes in environmental protection, and Scott Pruitt will be a powerful advocate for that mission while promoting jobs, safety, and opportunity. Meanwhile, Pruitt was quoted as saying, The American people are tired of seeing billions of dollars drained from our economy due to unnecessary EPA regulations. And I intend to run this agency in a way that fosters both responsible protection of the environment and freedom for American businesses. Now, it remains to be seen what this change in administration means more specifically in the case of public lands in America. But we will watch closely and report new developments each week in the Public Lands podcast. It was also reported this week by the United Nations that electronic waste in Southeast Asia increased by almost two-thirds between 2010 and 2015, a highly unsustainable rate that has both regional and international environmental monitors and regulators concerned. More than 12.3 million tons of e-waste was tossed out in the region during that five-year period. In one of those odd comparisons that might or might not effectively communicate the scope of the problem, the United Nations University, the UNU, stated that high amount that that high amount of electronic refuse weighs over two and a half times more than the Great Pyramid of Giza. Why the UNU used an Egyptian reference to explain the gravity of Southeast Asia's waste issue is not completely clear. Turning to news out of the U.S. Northeast, results of a new study by researchers at the Northeast Climate Science Center, the NECSC, at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, published in PLOS One, indicates that temperatures across the northeastern United States will increase much faster than the global average. One of the study's authors, geosciences professor Raymond Bradley, explains, quote, with the signing of the Paris Agreement to try and limit greenhouse gas emissions, many people have been lulled into a false sense of security thinking that the 2 degrees C target is somehow a safe limit for climate change. But the 2 C number is a global average, and many regions will warm more and warm more rapidly than the Earth as a whole. Our study shows that the Northeast United States is one of those regions where warming will proceed very rapidly, so that if and when the global tar- target is reached, we will already be experiencing much higher temperatures with all of the related ecological, hydrological, and agricultural consequences. So here at the Public Lands podcast, we'll continue to keep an eye on the Trump administration's environmental policies and regulatory actions, electronic waste around the world, and our warming world. Now let's turn to this week's guest, Pauline Schaefer, Education Director for the Reach Museum. Located in Richland, Washington, the museum tells the story of the Hanford Reach National Monument. In fact, the museum's mission statement reads, quote, our primary mission will be one of Storyteller, looking through the lens of the Hanford Reach National Monument and the Columbia River. I interviewed Pauline at the Reach Museum for a few weeks ago while on the road, on December 20th, 2016. All right, we're here today at the Reach Museum in Richland, Washington, a rich interpretive center for Hanford Reach National Monument. Our guest today is Pauline Schaefer, educator for the Reach Museum. Thanks so much for joining us, Pauline. Thank you. And uh, to start, I wonder if you could provide listeners with an overview of Hanford Reach. It is an extremely important historical site preserve, yet many listeners in other parts of the country and world might not know much about it.
1: So uh, before 1943, this area was... A lot different from what it is now, uh, mainly a farming community. There were um, just the beginnings of irrigation uh, getting started with you know, uh, farms and orchards, wheat farming, um, apples and peaches. And in 1943, the site was chosen for the top-secret Manhattan Project um, as the United States entered World War II. and was looking for a site... Uh, that was isolated enough from the rest of the population, but yet had um, an abundant supply of cold water to cool nuclear reactors, and um, it was just a secretive enough place that no one would suspect it for uh, the place to enrich and create plutonium for nuclear weapons. So once this site was chosen, um, the changes started happening really quickly. Thousands of people moved into the Richland area, and it became a government town. Um, It was the largest um, trailer park in in North America. As uh, they were struggling to house all the workers, there were barracks, there were dormitories, but also just trailers. Um, And eventually uh, the word came out, because this was all top secret. Most of the workers here did not even know what they were working on other than it was a war effort and it was a secret. Um, the, uh, eventually the news came out after the bomb was dropped on Nagasaki that the materials that were used in that bomb the Fat Man were produced here at Hanford. Um, after the war was over uh, they didn't know exactly what was going to happen with Hanford but as the Cold War started to k- shape up it became clear that nuclear weapons were still going to be produced, and uh, for many more decades, that's what was happening here at Hanford. So it has been um, a place that attracted scientists, engineers, and now environmental engineers that help with the cleanup. Um, since 1989, with the tripartite agreement that closed Hanford as a production facility, but now is the largest environmental cleanup site in North America. Um, and quite uh, an, an operation that's going to continue for decades into the future, um, as they still continue uh, containing the nuclear materials that are still on site there and uh, rehabilitating the land. So the the interesting thing about it too is then as is, uh, because it was such a secretive site because it was such a protected area, the buffer land around the Hanford area has turned into some of the nicest uh, wildlife refuge that you can find around here. Um, because everyone was kept off of the land, there were ch- areas that were went unchanged for thousands of years um, and very much like it used to be thousands of years ago. Uh, as scientists were allowed to go onto the sites um, on some of the buffer lands around the Columbia River and, and the Shrub Step area, around the Hanford site. There were new species that were discovered of plants and animals. And it really just gave a, a chance people a chance to learn more about the sagebrush ecosystem and, um, and figure out how it can be preserved.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the fascinating things about the National Monument and this museum, that you're covering so many issues from history to the, the natural resources is that a challenge as far as not only the museum, but also as an interpreter yourself and, and doing this kind of interpretive work to have to cover the gamut like that?
1: Um, yeah, in, in some ways uh, because I because we have a, a story to start with. Um, I mean, in, in real life, all these things are intertwined and we don't need to separate them into different topics. And so when we're doing education, especially with schools, um, we really just take an interdisciplinary approach. And you know, there are certain topics that we'll uh, highlight to focus on. For instance, if a teacher approaches us and we want to we want to learn about the animals or the plants of the shrub step ecosystem. Um, that's where we start, but we keep incorporating all these other elements too and say, well, why is this great area here? Well, it's because of our history in World War II. It's because of uh, all the production that was going on here during the Cold War. So um, it really just, uh, kids end up learning a lot more than, than just that one tiny subject area, and it, uh, it ends up being, I think, a, a richer experience for them. Um, and hopefully gives them some pride in the place where they live.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, and it makes me think about the, uh, I think you have a program coming up as far as training interpreters, because I, I think there's you never learn more than when you teach. So mm-hmm. um, how is that getting the community involved, and what's that program about?
1: So uh, that's going to be a training uh, that we're not doing ourselves, but we're hosting it, uh, the National Association for Interpretation, NAI, Um, is providing an instructor who's going to come and give an intensive 32-hour, I believe, workshop uh, uh, to become an interpretive guide. And so we're offering it to anyone in the community who wants to learn how to interpret the place where they are, and for professionals or volunteers. And um, we're including a lot of people um, who are volunteers in Organizations uh, such as the Nation- Native Plant Society. Um, the we pr- approached people from um, Tapteel Greenway, which has uh, manages some of the open land, open space in the Tri Cities area, and um, a- often a lot of these folks, you know, give. Uh, hikes in the to the community, interpretive hikes, and so we 're hoping that this will allow them to kind of better connect with people in the community and sharing what are the natural resources in the area so uh, we 're really excited to be offering that, and I, I think i 'm going to learn a lot from it and I hope um, that it 'll be a good bonding experience too with other people in the community I that i haven 't so. connected with yet yeah
0: yeah oh that 's great and, and so sharing the knowledge you have as well. Um, and how did you get started? What brought you to Richland, Washington, as far as being an educator yourself, environmental educator?
1: Um, well, it, my family came here because of a job opportunity that my husband had um, at the national laboratories here, oh, yeah. and I meet so many people who are come, who come to the area for that. Um, so it's it's an interesting uh, gathering of folks from all over the country um, and even all over the world, and. This, uh, um, you know, just looking for what's what's going on with environmental education in the community. I found this place and was found the opportunity to learn about the land and learn about the history while also getting to develop some of the programs myself. So I've been here for about a year and um, started out just as an educator and um, have been now working to develop some of the curriculum and um, start new programs. We started a, a preschool program uh, that meets twice a month here and um, just looking for new ways to bring families in, not only just once to come and see the exhibits, but repeated visits uh, to you know, learn more about the stories that we tell here through different activities that they can do together.
0: Sure. And, and as far as what works for you as an interpreter, your own particular style, thinking about the ways to, to reach out to a public, to share the knowledge that you've gained in the last year and a half here, um, what are some of the techniques or one of the ideas that really you always have in mind when you're thinking about how am I going to present this material?
1: Um, I always frame it in terms of stories because that's, that's, um, that's how this place got started, uh, just inviting people to tell their stories. There are so many people in the community that worked at Hanford, um, even all the way back to World War II, and they have some amazing stories to tell. Many of them are volunteers, volunteer docents in the museum. So, um, the longer I'm here, the more stories I hear from them. Um, but visitors get to hear those stories too when they're walking through the galleries. Um, and then just that's that gives me a place to start too. If I you know, I'm about to go in front of a, a group of kids or or uh, adult, adults, I just think of, I have a story to tell you about why this place is here and, and start from there. Um, and also just kind of look at what are, as they're going through the exhibits, through the galleries, what are the things that they're interested in and what's catching their interest and then think of a way to, to reach them through that. For instance, you know, um, We have that you can open the drawers and see some of the fossils that have been found around here, from a short-legged rhinoceros, or um, or there's a baby mammoth skeleton that we have in the gallery, and so that's that's always an easy way to get kids interested. Like, do you know where this came from? It was just right across the river from here, just a neighborhood not too far from here. You might be able to find something like that too.
0: Well, that's great. That's a great hook. I have a story to tell you. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for sharing your story with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Pauline. That was Pauline Schaefer, who we spoke to at Richland, Washington, the Reach Museum, where she is the Education Director. Next week, we will hear from Dr. Deborah Giles, Research Director and Project Manager for the Center for Whale Research, located in Friday Harbor, Washington. Meanwhile, if you have any comments, questions, ideas, or information to report about a public land or waterway near you, let us know about it at publiclandspodcast at gmail.com. That's publiclandspodcast at gmail.com. Until next week, enjoy and take care of a park or wilderness area near you. Somebody's great-grandchildren will thank you.